Blog Talk Radio. Beyond the Gate Radio, where anything goes from the supernatural to the paranormal and everything in between, including UFOs and cryptozoology. Welcome to our Sunday, December 15, 2013 edition of Beyond the Gate Radio. It's a one-hour show today. I am your host, David Baker, and my co-host is Sherelle Baker. Hello, Sherelle. Good evening. Good evening, David. How are you doing today? Amazingly well. And yourself? Fabulous. Great to be back on the air. We have some wonderful um, out-of-town guests that are staying with us who are also listening in on chat. And I am excited to have our guest here tonight and also to find out the information about the Sasquatch. That's right. Well, I'll be uh, talking about that shortly. Yes, how can I not honor our friends visiting from Washington State. They're professional paranormal investigators and really great people. And it's uh, Russ and Sandy Wells. A lot of you probably know them already. They're really good people. We went to the uh, famous Winchester Mystery House in San Jose to investigate that a little bit. We went to Alcatraz Penitentiary in San Francisco Bay. And we will be going to the USS Hornet and investigate that and see what happens. So anyway, we're going to have to have them on here in the near future to talk about all that. But right now, our fabulous guest for tonight is Will Jevnim. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly too. That's my weak point in his names, but I'll have to clarify it when we get him on. But let me tell you a little bit about him first. William is a researcher of Sasquatch, otherwise known as Bigfoot. He is also author of several books, including In Search of the Unknown and Notes from the Field, Tracking North America's Sasquatch. His interest started at age 14, and he says, I was 14 years old during December 1972 when a friend and I came upon large man-like footprints in the snow while we were walking to another of our friends' homes. And, say any more, because we'd like to welcome Will in right now and also uh, ask him about his radio show in just a minute. But first, let's bring Will in. Will, welcome to Beyond the Gate Radio. It's a pleasure having you here. Sherelle, David, thank you for having me on this evening. You're quite welcome. Glad to be here. Glad that you're king. Now, could you first, before we begin telling your story, just tell us a little bit about a radio show that you're doing. Well, um, Wes Germer and Woody Pratt and myself 
uh, began co-hosting a new show that used to be called Bigfoot Hotspot. It's now Sasquatch Chronicles, and we just finished our, I want to say, sixth show, uh, which aired earlier today. Uh, so it's, that's been a lot of fun, and what makes it unique is the fact that all three of us have had personal encounters with these creatures. So uh, we have a little different angle when we talk about various parts of the subject. That's good. I think it helps pull loose ends together and, and have people look at it from different angles. Now, would you consider this field, the study of Sasquatch, to be based in the area of cryptozoology, or am I yeah, wrong I about that? So. Um, it's, you know, something that's, um, I mean, the creatures have been around for a long, long, long time, so it's more something I think we've chosen as a species to forget about, um, you know, and it's, what I always say, it's when they're proven to be real, it'll be the reaffirmation of discovery, not something we're discovering new. They've been around, you know, our ancestors knew about them, and I think in modern times we've just, our attention has gone elsewhere and we've just chosen to forget about them. Well, that's amazing. And, you know, I did mention this uh, type of field, you know, people class it under, but I would say that what you're really doing uh, is more of a scientific investigation study and research. Would that be right? I, I would say so as much as we can, yeah. And the uh, predecessor to the Sasquatch would be uh, in fossils found from a creature they call Gigantopithecus or something like that, a well, large actually, ape? That's one of the trains of thought. Um, about 10 million years ago, there were about 50 different species around the entire planet of uh, various types of primates, and very few of those are remain, remain today. So there's some really big gaps in the fossil record, and some of these primates grew, like the Gigantopithecus grew upwards towards 10 or 12 feet in height and up to 1,200 pounds. Um, and it's not known if they were upright walking like we are or not, but upright, upright walking primates are not uncommon. We're not the, the first one to do that. Um, upright walking primates have been around about seven and a half million years, so um, it's not out of the question for something like this to still be around today. You know, just because we haven't discovered it yet, they just recently... Uh, the Russians discovered some microbes of life under a deep ice in the Antarctica that's been frozen over for a long time. They found new species on different tropical islands. They found the, uh, I guess it's called the Kalanikath or something like that, which is, was a living fossil. It was considered to be an extinct fish. And much of the world has not been thoroughly uh, explored enough and so I'm saying if there's a creature out there that's pretty much unknown to us but is of high intelligence, you know, there's no reason why it would make itself known when it's probably a private creature. That's right. And I think, you know, as an aggressive a species as, as humans are, um, and a lot of native peoples and in older documents from around the world suggest that uh, there was a lot of friction between humans and these creatures and uh that's one of the reasons they're off in the remote areas, you know, basically keeping away from us. That's interesting. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Now, I'd like to know, how did you get started? You know, how did your interest 
uh, come about with the, in this area of Sasquatch? Well, when I was growing up, uh, we grew up about 40 miles as the crow flies northwest of Mount Rainier in Washington State, and that was a very remote area where it was pretty common. I mean, there were a lot of bear. There was even elk that would come down and eat with the cattle in the mornings. And um, so, you know, we I grew up hunting and fishing and uh, spending a lot of time in the outdoors, and, and I've never heard the word Bigfoot or Sasquatch up until I was about 14. In fact, uh, Coincidentally, it'll be 41 years ago tomorrow that my friend Mark, who came over to spend the weekend, uh, and I were kind of bored on that December Saturday morning uh, with a couple inches of snow on the ground, so we decided to walk over to another of our friend John Adams' home. And we normally would take a trail through the woods between my house and John's, but with snow covering the ground, we couldn't find a trail. So we decided to walk down the road and to the railroad tracks that bisected the area and it ran close to John's home, so it was sort of a logical way to go. And so we walked down the road, and it was really, really cold that morning. It was about 17 degrees out. And we got about halfway to John's, and through this, on this line of railroad tracks that ran through the forest, and uh, there was kind of, kind of on a terraced-looking landscape where uh, the tracks ran along the side of this hill, and there was a... Uh, a fire access road above and below the line of tracks that had been made by a bulldozer the previous summer. So as Mark and I walked along about 100 feet or so ahead of us, we saw something red lying between the rails. That was the only thing that wasn't covered with snow was the rails. And we walked up to this spot, and here's this uh, small amount from, I would say, I've always said what it looked like came from a medium-sized dog or a coyote, uh, intestines lying there but there were no animal footprints or human footprints or anything around these to indicate how they got where they were. So we were kind of puzzled, and I said, well, you know, we didn't see anything the way we came. We could see the access road below us, nothing down there. So I said, well, you walk up on ahead, and I'll climb the bank to our left and see if there's anything up there. So Mark walked on ahead, and I climbed the bank. It was about 10 feet or so up, and as I crested that road, the, the snow was just chewed up with footprints. And I hollered in to come and, and look. I found something up there. So as we were standing there looking at all these footprints, dozens of them, they were big, barefoot, human-like looking footprints in the snow. And we were puzzled. We couldn't figure out, because they were bigger than a normal person's foot, uh, probably, you know, a foot and a half long. Uh, that didn't bother us as much as the fact that I said, Mark, those intestines weren't frozen yet. Whatever made these tracks is really close by because... Yeah, that's cold as it was, so that scared us, and we took off running to John's house. And we got raced up there and started pounding on the door furiously, and, and John had a couple of sisters and a couple of brothers, so, you know, we were all, you know, between, you know, 13 and, and 14 years old, so it was just pandemonium in their house. And John's dad came into the living room, and he said, boys, boys, quiet down, let's tell me what happened. So we told him what we found, and... He grabbed his 45 pistol and a camera, and he said, take me back and show me where you found this. So all of us headed back to that spot, and he took a bunch of photographs uh, that he said he still has to this day and proceeded to explain to us what, as best he could what he knew about the subject. And, of course, you know, we're all standing there with our jaws hanging open at the fact that there's monsters, man-like hairy monsters running around the forest, uh, you know, so as 14-year-old, that just kind of grabbed our imagination. 
and we all went out every weekend after that looking for more uh, tracks of the creatures themselves, and, and we didn't see anything. So, you know, over time we kind of lost interest. And then in the fall, it would have been October of 1974, uh, right around hunting season, my dog went crazy one evening, right before dark. And we used to tie him up. He was a collie, and he liked to go roam the neighboring farms, and my parents didn't want him getting into any trouble at night doing anything, so we kept him tied to his house. And um, my dad always said, well, there's a lot of raccoons and skunks and things that would come in here and are probably rabid, so if you see anything come in the yard, shoot it. We don't want the cats or the dog getting distemper. So I, instead of grabbing, grabbing my hunting rifle or shotgun, I grabbed a twenty two and a couple of bullets, and I, I let him go, and I told him to go get him, and he runs straight for the tree line. And all the years I had that dog, he never stopped for anything. Uh, he would chase coyotes or anything, which is pretty dangerous for a dog to do because packs of coyotes will lure dogs in and they kill them and eat them. Right, but, right. Yeah, so he he stopped at the tree line. He went running at a, at a dead run, got to the tree line, and just froze. And I got about halfway to him, which was maybe 7,500 feet, and I couldn't figure out what he was doing. I thought, well, maybe there's a porcupine or something in there that's, you know, that he's wary of. So as I approached him, he wheeled around and ran straight past me back to the house, and he sat up on the back porch and just shivered. And I thought, that's really odd. And I never saw him do anything like that. So I chambered around, and I walked up to the tree line, and I thought, you know, I could hear something moving in there. So I thought, well, you know, it must have been a porcupine or something that scared him. So... I, there were some low-hanging branches, fir branches, and I held my rifle in my right hand, and I pushed through with my left, and there was a big maple tree in there, a really big one, and all the leaves were on the ground, but it, it made this big open area inside the tree line, and as I pushed my way through, I came within a, within 15 feet, no more than that, of this huge, hairy, human, well, it wasn't human-looking, it was basic design was like a man, but it wasn't a man. Uh, and it was moving the leaves with its right foot kind of casually. And I just froze and I thought, oh, my God, what is that? Yes. <laughs> it was a little bit of a shock. And it saw me and it stopped moving. And I can still picture with extreme clarity, you know, its right foot was slightly arched up, the toes were arched up, and I could see it was all covered with hair that was, you know, anywhere from four to six inches long. Uh, at its longest, and I, but I could see the tendon coming up through the hair and, and, and around the toes, and it was, you know, kind of like colored skin, dirty, but, uh, and the creature itself was, was massive. I haven't grown up around, you know, hunting and, and butchering animals on the farm all these years. I got a pretty good idea of what animals weighed. And this thing was at least eight feet tall and every bit of eight or nine hundred pounds. And it just glared at me, and it was... I wouldn't say a paralyzing look, but it was. It put me in a pretty high state of fear, and it was not a real happy look. Right, uh, right. I don't know that it was menacing, but it was not a happy camper that I was there. And I thought. Did you okay. notice any of us any smell? Too, I always hear about smells. I, I didn't, but, but there there are some different things, um, you know, about smell because um, it, it could, you know, different things of smell are like. Uh, it could be, you know, something on the creature's hair, you know, from eating, or you know, like in the spring, if they're eating a lot of berries, they could have diarrhea from not eating berries through the winter. Um, and some primates, some large primates, have scent glands in their hands and other parts of their bodies. So, and when they are excited, they excrete uh, odors. I'm sure that's either 
uh, you know, used for territory or a warning. Oh, okay. Or a warning. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Right. So in most cases, they really don't have an odor. In most, probably, you know, one out of ten sighting encounters will report an odor, but most of them don't. But this one didn't. And so as we stood there kind of staring, staring at each other, I heard a noise to my right rear, and I, I turned my head just slightly, and here comes another one off behind some brush. Uh-huh. The other one stood next to the first one, and it was about a head shorter and a couple hundred pounds lighter. And, well, let me back up a little bit. What I did is I, before that noise happened is I decided to shoot in the air to see what would happen. I thought maybe it would scare it off or something, but that's when I heard the noise behind me, and here comes the other one. So then I decided to take off running and then follow the dog's example and run to the Yes, house. yes. And I didn't tell my parents because they made fun of us about the tracks in, you know, previously that we'd found. So I called John, and I told him what I'd seen, and along with his brothers and another one of our friends decided to meet me at first light at my house. And it froze really hard that night, so the ground was just white like snow. And we followed the two sets of tracks for over a mile or so until the sun came out and melted the trail. But um, we didn't tell anybody about this. We just talked about it amongst ourselves. And one day that winter, probably uh, January or February, we were on the bus, John and I were talking quietly about that incident. And um, another one of our good friends overheard us talking quietly. He was a pretty nice guy, quiet and shy. And he asked me if he could interview me about our experiences. So I said, well, okay, sure. I, I didn't think it would ever go anywhere because he was just sort of the, the shyest guy in the class that wouldn't talk to anybody. So I told him, and he gave me some books written by a man named John Green. John Green and Rene DeHendon from British Columbia were uh, the foremost world experts on the subject. And... I couldn't believe there was so much information in these three. They were basically magazine-like books. And um, so I didn't think, you know, much about it. We didn't see anything more. And then later that summer in July of 75, I was napping one afternoon, and one of my sisters came in and said, hey, there's a couple men here to see you. And I woke up and I thought, men here to see me? I only knew my dad's friends and my uncle. So I slipped on my barn boots and I walked out the back door, and, and I hear Renee to him, and I recognized him from Green's book standing there. And wow. a gentleman by the name of Dennis Gates from Cedar Woolley and, and DeHinden and Green were in Puyallup, which was seven miles north of where I lived, investigating the Puyallup Screamer events, which was a, a big deal at that time. And we talked about what I had seen, and he invited me to their camp. So I went there later on that afternoon and stayed a few days with him and Green and a number of other people who were involved in this. And... Uh, DeHendon and Green liked me, so they, we exchanged phone numbers and contact information and wanted me to stay in touch and help them, you know, with investigations. So that's really how I got my introduction to the subject. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. It surely is. Now, you know, we'll be jumping back and forth. Uh, in different areas of the world, Apparently, this creature has been seen and is known as, or there's reason for the name besides Bigfoot, would be like Yeti, Sasquatch, the Skunk Ape, Bobble Snowman, and so forth. So, does this mean that this creature has been around the world in different locations, seemingly isolated locations, of course, seen by many cultures for 
as long as the written history has, you know, as long as you know, it's written history and some maybe Native Americans have stories about that go way, way back. Oh, yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, in one of the new books, I'm working on three new books right now. One of them I'm going to be talking about, um, what I call one of the chapters is called Other Wild Men because there may be as many as four or five different species of these things around the world. Um, you know, with the Sasquatch being the largest and the least um, sophisticated. Uh, there's another one that's a slightly smaller, uh, both here and in Russia, they call the Almas, which is a little more human-like, but it's still a, a hair-covered wild man. Uh, I suppose you could akin it to Neanderthals or something like that. And then there's, you know, the Skunk Ape, which is a little different version, than, and then the Yeti, and then there's even one in South America. So they, they're definitely all over. Uh, when you look back in the history, just Native Americans, in my book notes in the field, I think I have about 93 different names listed. You sure do. And 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 it's just a smattering from tribes and bands around the country. It's not nowhere near all-inclusive. There are hundreds of names just from this continent alone. And the history goes as far back. In fact, most Native uh, cultures say that these creatures were here before they arrived on the continent. Um, you go back... If you look at popular movies, there was a movie, I think it was Thor, where they talked about the frost giants. Well, in Scandinavian countries, the frost giants are the Sasquatch. And and so on and so on. You can go all around the world and there's, there's a name for them, or multiple names usually. That makes sense. Now, uh, so you call the one here the Sasquatch. Why is it also known as Bigfoot? You know, can you tell our listeners for the yeah. benefit of those who don't know? Well, when this first came to pub, because it's been around, I mean, there's newspaper articles that date back around 200 years uh, from this country alone. And the Spanish missionaries recorded information for, the, for 300 years ago, you know, from native uh, peoples around this continent. And the term Bigfoot came about in the late 50s when a bulldozer operator in Northern California found some tracks, and on one of these finds, uh, a local newspaper reporter was up with him looking at tracks and the operator's name was Jerry Crew and he just made the offhanded remark that fellow sure has big feet and so the reporter coined the term Bigfoot and that's what stuck and uh, and oftentimes it's used when, when I talked about the multiple possibilities of different species uh, you know everything gets lumped under the term Bigfoot and really it's not all Bigfoot so that's confusing but it's there has to be some divisions. <laughs> yes, I, I most definitely believe that. And I noticed in, in your book, of course, that you give some documented examples of these reports that go way back and some chronological examples that go from the last century all the way up to the present. And there's so many people that have reported these sightings. I remember listening to the Coast to Coast AM radio show when a person, I believe he was either a psychiatrist or a medical doctor, you know, professional person, scientist, you know, somebody that's not given to playing pranks or, you know, pulling off hoaxes or anything like that, stated that him and his family were out hiking and they encountered one and when it approached them, it scared you know the heck out of them. They they ran for it. 
I believe how the story went, but it was you know lots of people that are out in the wilderness have never had TV, internet, newspapers, or anything like that, or contact with other people have came out and told these same stories. You know what I mean? So I think it's really amazing, but they're they're just not seen very often. You know, you'd be amazed how often they are seen. Um, when I was working in the Mount St. Helens area for about 12 years, uh, based on my interviews with people in that region, and that's about a 3,300-square-mile area I was working then, I estimated probably there was probably one, 10 reports for every one that somebody came forward with. And based on the population of that size of that area at the time, there would have been about 10,000 encounters in that area. And most people, even where I grew up, uh, I'm still hearing people contacting me with encounters that they had during those years um, the same creatures that we saw. And um, it's just the people are so, uh, you know, prone to not say anything because they're still afraid people are going to think they're crazy, even with the exposure it has today. So right. it's still something that it gets seen a lot, but people won't talk about it. That's why I asked you the question, because I knew that's probably... Uh, cited more often in certain areas than others, and then people won't, won't talk about it. And, Sherelle, what were you going to say? I was going to ask you, uh, Will, about that new show, Finding Bigfoot uh, on Animal Planet, how they talk about it, and in, in just like you know, we were talking about earlier here at home, um, mediumship and stuff like that, and how now that they had all these shows out and a lot of people in more exposure do you think more people will come out of the woodwork to talk more about it and not feel so um, seeming like, because, you know, we're still dealing with, you know, people talking about alien invasions and stuff like that, that people are still hiding things. So do you think with the more exposure from the show that, you know, it would more people will be interested in coming forward? You know, there is some of that, but it really depends on, on who... Um, and how that information has come out, like, you know, shows like that, um, is a little, it's completely different than, than the radio show that I currently co-host, where all of us who are, are, are hosts have actually encountered these creatures personally. And it's hard to explain it, I guess, uh, in, in a nutshell. It's, it's easier for someone who's had an experience to talk to someone else who's had an experience uh, because it's easier to relate, you know. And That's true. That's true. Like that, that particular television show, those guys have not had experiences. You know? And they're searching for to have that experience. Right, and, and their attitude is completely different than, than ours. And we were talking about it on our show a couple of times about how, you know, we we are number one very skeptical when we when we listen to encounters, we we really pick them apart, and because it could be a variety of things that people encounter, and we have to factor in psychological circumstances and and other animals, and, and everything that could possibly come into play. And where somebody who hasn't had an experience with one of these creatures will more often than not jump the gun, and, and the first thing that comes to mind is Bigfoot, whereas those of us who have seen these creatures and experienced them, it'll be the last thing on our list. We try to rule everything else out before we make that assumption. And I've had many people contact me, and, and Wes and Woody have too, thanking us for coming out and, and hosting the show and sort of providing a place for people to come to. And 
one of the things, too, we've had is um, uh, people who will contact me and because of their professional standing or, or other reasons will want to relate an experience, but they, they ask for anonymity. And I have always guaranteed um, you know, witnesses both their names, places, or any information they want to remain anonymous if they wish that. And they'll relate things to me, and it's like a burden off their shoulders to be able to tell somebody who has had a similar experience with these creatures, you know, to, to sort of have a chance to talk it over with. And uh, so it's, it's been very interesting. So it really depends on, on how the inform- who exposes the information and how it's done. Okay. I'm most interested and always have been and always have believed the footage to be authentic, the uh, famous Patterson and Gimlin film of the Sasquatch. That is totally amazing. I've seen shows where they try to analyze it, and they said, you know what? Uh, the movements and everything and, the, you know, studying the figure on there could not be a person in a suit. It's absolutely an authentic creature, you know, the way they articulate when they move and everything. The space, this, just the space of the prints and everything and the weight of the creature. You know, who's going to go out in the middle of the wilderness that may take you days to get to and fake something in millions of acres of forest hoping somebody will discover it? Not. <laughs> so anyway, that that's really interesting. It's authentic. I, I believe it to be authentic for sure. And you've known some very interesting people. Could you tell us a little bit about Al Hodgson? Al Hodgson, you know, was somebody who was really kind of overlooked and ignored for many, many years. Uh, the whole reason, one of well, besides, before the film came out, before Patterson got the film, and Al was really the guy who was responsible for Patterson being there, and, and which enabled him to get that film. But um, Al, uh, Northern California, that part of Northern California, Willow Creek is a is a very very out of the way place, and still to this day, a very small population. And it's about an hour north of there is where the film site was, where Patterson got his film. But Hodgson ran local variety store back in those days. So uh, the decade from 1958 to 1967, in that time frame, was when what they called Green called the big years. That's when all these big track finds were being made in that area. And um, and that's really what got the public's imagination was when Green and DeHinden and, and all those people started working in that area and putting information out. And then, of course, Patterson getting the film. And that's how Bigfoot got to be a, a household term. But Hodgson was the guy, since he was centrally located, whenever somebody from out of the area would come into that area to do some work, Hodgson was the guy who knew what was going on and was sort of the linchpin of everything that happened there. And about three weeks prior to uh, the film being made, uh, there was a, a group of loggers who were coming out, walking the gate one night, and they found three sets of tracks on this logging road. And they went down, told Al, Al contacted John Green, and Green and DeHinden flew down with a dog handler, uh, and by the time they got there, of course, it had rained, and a lot of the tracks were nothing but, uh, you know, wet globs. So they didn't conclude much, and, and they left. And Hodgson wasn't sure how well Patterson knew Green. Of course, they Green and Patterson were good friends, but Al didn't know that. So Al waited, and he contacted Patterson's home, talked to Mrs. Patterson, because 
uh, Roger and, and Bob Gimlin were in Mount St. Helens area at the time. Uh, so she told him, or he told her what was going on and that to tell Roger that he should come down if he wanted to see some tracks. So as soon as they found out, they basically grabbed whatever they could, borrowed a few dollars, and, and you know, the claims of hoaxing, uh, you know, and making a suit and all that are, are ridiculous because Patterson didn't have any money, didn't have any equipment. Most of the equipment belonged to uh, Bob Gimlin, the truck and everything. So they drove down there with their horses and, and rode around the country filming uh, for three weeks. And at the end of that time, in fact, it was the last day they were going out one last time to give it a shot, and they rode four miles up Bluff Creek, and, and that particular part of the stream, the Bluff Creek's about 13 miles long, and they were about seven miles up the creek, so they were way up there uh, in the middle of nowhere, and they came across the creature and filmed it. But, uh, and even Bob Gimlin told me, I've talked to him a few times, he said he was closer than Patterson was, and he could uh, see the creature's teeth, could see its tongue, look in its face, and it was not a happy look. Uh, he said it was actually a lighter color. You know, the film uh, had some sort of, uh, I don't know what the type of terminology would be, but sometimes the coloring is off a little bit on those old uh, films. Right. It's actually a little lighter color than what we see in the film. So, And we could see all the muscle groups. And when you look at the film, you can, and what impresses me is, you know, the calf muscles moving. Uh, and uh, Bill Munns, who is a, a Hollywood professional, he made the uh, suit for uh, the film Swamp Thing. And he did some work with Patterson's film recently and, and showed that how, and talked about how when they make suits for Hollywood, uh, the joints still have to line up. They can do extensions on arms and things like that, but the joints with the actors still have to line up. And when they line up a human against that creature's joints, they're totally off. Uh, the lower leg is shorter than in a human uh, the hips in a different place, the same with the elbow, the forearm is much longer than the upper arm. Uh, it, everything is out of place, so it very clearly shows that it's authentic. And then in 1967, they took the film to Disney Studios, which at the time was the number one special effects people, and their only comment was, we wish we could do something that good. That's amazing. And another thing that I noticed about the film is, it appears to be a female creature and not a male creature because it has, you know, breasts on it and everything like that. Even though it's furry, they are clearly shown there. And that's uh, really totally amazing. I have a, a friend that lives in uh, Northern California. Oh, I see, where is it? Anyway, he has up some property up there. One of his friends said that they had, uh, by the cabin, I think he said it was a 50-gallon drum with pork or something in there. And he heard a, a ruckus and he looked out his window and he saw, you know, a, a Sasquatch lifting up this drum that was full of pork. It must have a really good scent. <laughs> and leap, uh, put it under its arm and leap over a fence and take off. Now that's got to be a strong creature. Extremely strong, right. Yeah, I, I've heard of very similar things like that. They'll uh, they'll take things or move objects that are that are far heavier uh, than any person could ever lift, and they can climb you know inclines that a person couldn't climb, and uh, they move in very different ways than humans do. So, uh, it, it witnesses, in fact, of Wes and Woody, my my co-host, when their encounter was a year ago, and. Um, they were actually approached by four of them at night surrounded, and the big male challenged them. 
and uh, they said it, it moved in a way that no human could move when it was it dropped down and on all fours and, and did some things. It was just a, a very interesting account, and it, it left them in shock. And, and it does a lot of people when they you know see and hear things that they can't explain. I totally believe that. And as far as strength goes, before I ask you the next question, I believe in your book you mentioned some people were building or grading a road and they kept seeing all these tracks around their equipment and that one day they, uh, a bulldozer, they attached the blade of the bulldozer, which has got to weigh maybe a ton at least, depending on the size of the dozer, that they noticed that it had been pushed like 100 meters away from it and left there like they were totally shocked. Can you mention a little bit about that? I was trying to remember that. I can't remember that. <laughs> okay, but anyway, I won't give away your book. There's a lot of great stuff in there, but they, as you said, they're very strong creatures. Extremely strong, yes. Now, should people be afraid of them? Like, I know you should not try to approach it and definitely um, would never should never attempt to shoot it, and plus there's laws in many places uh, against shooting those creatures, but uh, are they malevolent or friendly or, you know, well, does you it know, vary? It, it's funny. I mean, for the most part, they will, you know, if they know a person's in the area, they'll just leave the area. They won't, they won't stick around. That doesn't mean that they're uh, not aggressive. There are plenty of, plenty of cases where they've done very aggressive things, um, I would always tell people I would treat it like you would a bear encounter. Uh, you know, don't mess with them. Don't, you know, basically just leave the area. Uh, because, you know, with any wild creature, you don't really know what its disposition is, what they're going to do. And, um, and there are plenty of encounters where these things have been aggressive and done aggressive things, and they're territorial. So, um, you know, they're not, it's not Harry and the Hendersons, you know, that a lot right. of people like. Right. Like to think that way, they can go up and approach them and try to do the, the gentle giant thing, but uh, the, the, the preponderance of stories don't bear that out. Now, do you go investigating them uh, in more than one way besides interviewing witnesses and checking out areas where tracks have been reported or other signs? Uh, do you actually go out... Uh, you know, do you have methods of investigation to try and track them, or do you not do that? Oh, yeah, I spend a lot of time in the field, and uh, I work uh, the region basically from around the Canadian border clear down here in Northern California. Do you use... I a lot more time in the field than I do interviewing witnesses. Okay, and, you know, I don't understand it all too well. Um, more familiar with you know, paranormal investigations with spirits and stuff. But right. do you use anything like a trigger object to lure a Sasquatch into the area, like a recording of a voice or a tapping on a tree or anything like that? No. Um, you know, one of the things, there's lots of people that go out and they try this stuff, and it's, you know, I, I understand where the thinking might come from, but, when you think about wild creatures, you kind of have to, especially coming from background of hunting and fishing, uh, you know, deer, when you're hunting, if you happen to have your safety on and realize as you're getting ready to pull the trigger to bring a deer or elk down, that the sound, even no matter how slight it is, the sound of that 
safety going off. That small click is enough to alert an animal and they'll run for the hills. So many wildlife was like that, and they're very afraid of humans. I mean, you know, we've established ourselves throughout history that we kill everything. Right, that's one of the reasons animals stay away from us instinctually. And the Sasquatch isn't any different than that. And people who go out and make all these noises and things, all they're doing is driving whatever may have been an area away from them. Um, And the proof of that is, you know, these people go out and do this stuff. They don't have anything to show that there ever was a Sasquatch there. Uh, in my opinion, I've never seen anything. Uh, there may be hoaxer, hoaxers out there that are having a good laugh, banging on a tree back at them. But uh, my approach is to, you know, number one, they, they feed mostly at night. So I stay out of the feeding areas at night. And I know the kinds of places. I don't talk too much about it yet exactly where they feed, but uh, I know how they move through their ranges and uh, and what they're doing, essentially, in those ranges. And... It's okay to go in there during the daytime when they're because they sleep usually at higher elevations and they come down into the feeding areas at night. Uh, so I can search uh, along areas where I know what they're doing in those places and look for uh, territorial markings, droppings, feeding sign tracks, things like that. And I do pretty and, and pretty successful at that. And I know, you know, deer, for example sleep up high and they come down to graze or wherever they might want to go. But um, these creatures, you know, would following a, a deer trail, for example, be helpful in locating them? Or do you just kind of like figure out the areas that they go and just hang out there? Well, it takes a long time to study a range if you, if you have a group, and the groups are normally four to six individuals in a group, and they'll occupy, well, we, we'll use the Mount St. Helens area south, for example, about 3,300 square miles. There's two, maybe three ranges in that area, and and I haven't done enough work to see if those areas overlap or not, but um, I know within a 30-day time frame of where in that range they're going to be, and I can go to an area within that 30-day time frame. And because they change their feeding routes, and gorillas do this, and other primates do it too, it's to throw predators off, and, and the beneficial side of that is also not overfeeding in an area. And they don't stay as a group, though. They'll spread out from one another so they can maximize the amount of food value they get from what they, they uh, collect in those areas. So... Um, it, it takes a lot of work to kind of figure out where they are, and hopefully I'm there in time, you know, in that time frame, in the right, in that window, to be able to find evidence. And if I work an area long enough, like that area, I can I can get pretty close to them. That's really great, and because uh, you know you you've had a lot of experience now, so you're you know getting real good at it, becoming familiar with them and the ranges. I was wondering if you had any idea of uh, maybe what their diet or some of their diet might be. They eat, um, well, they eat pretty much anything. They're like a bear. They're omnivorous. Um, in the summer and fall months, they'll eat a lot of vegetation, but the preponderance of what they eat is uh, deer and other animals, whatever's in the area. Uh, Pretty heavy. In fact, one area I have, they've pretty much eaten all the deer in that area. I find little or no deer sign whatsoever in a 
about a 30 or 40 mile square area. Long droppings, they're, they're in there in uh, the months of July and August is one particular, I call this area, area number four. And um, they're bare in there and the bear are scared to death. I, I've seen you know, bears spooky everywhere else, but this particular place, there it seems like they're in a constant state of high alert during those months. So um, they're eating a lot of um, basically whatever they can get. Wow, that's interesting. And that makes sense too. Um, I have a question from chat, if you guys don't mind. Um, the question is the, the, the name, again, of the researcher that does uh, the Bigfoot research in uh, Cedro Woolley. Oh, his name was Dennis Gates. He's, he's passed away a long time ago now, but he was a good guy. Dennis used to work with John Green and Renee DeHinden back in the 70s. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Now, what kind of some of the best evidences that you've perhaps seen, and is it singular evidence or should it be taken as a whole with other types of evidences that might make sense that this is what you may be, uh, or evidence from that type of creature? Well, you know, when I started out, um, I hadn't seen a lot other than, you know, footprints and the creatures themselves, of course, and as I got to know Renee DeHinden primarily and John Green. Uh, I also got to know Bob Titmus, who was probably the best Sasquatch hunter that's ever been produced. Uh, Titmus, I, I, the first time I visited with him and then subsequently, you know, stayed in contact, uh, taught me a lot of the things he found. And one of the things he told me to watch for was uh, what I have pretty well figured out is territorial marking, and that's based on you know, Indian friends of mine uh, telling me, you know, what their uh, histories say about them doing this and um, things I found. And what Titmus showed me was basically just some, uh, he had a whole bunch of these that he brought back from the Bluff Creek area. And they were small alder branches that had just been kind of broken over. And I, they weren't too impressive to look at. But then I, I, I read a story in one of Green's books about uh, an incident that happened north of Anchorage and the story was published in Sports of Field magazine in 1963 and, and I think happened probably 20 years prior to that. But uh, some local Indians were terribly hunting in this area where these two trappers were. And um, they didn't really, they, they weren't the nicest folks, but they didn't, they respected these two guys because they respected their traps and things. So there was sort of a mutual uh, respect for one another, but no real close contact. And one day this group, a band of Indians, these hunters came into the, the white man's camp and, and asked one of them to um, uh, share a camp. They said they, they called the creature Gilyuk, and they said, you know, Gilyuk is here, we found his mark, and he's not here eating caribou, he eats men. So they told the two trappers they'd take him and show him his mark. Well, they traveled to this little area and they found this, they said it was a mangled birch sapling, and the sapling, they said, are described as being twisted like a matchstick. And I, I thought for a long time, what would that look like? I mean, there were no paper matchsticks in 1940, so they had to be wood. So how would something wood be twisted like that? And lo and behold, when I looked, and growing up in the Northwest, you, you know what every kind of weather break looks like on a tree, and different types of trees, and how they, you know, what the weather does in general, and then other animals do the things. So when I started seeing, and there's two types, uh, with Douglas fir, uh, they were snapped at 90 degree angles. And in 1991, I found the first line of these along a ridge in 
inside a closed canopy. And there's pictures in my, my book notes from the field of both types. Um, we were, a friend of mine, Jack Livingstone, were hiking up this watershed in an area where I'd had my second sighting in 1988, looking for sign in there. And very remote area, very difficult. It took us five times just to get into that area, let alone uh, search it. So we climbed up about 2,200 feet up this slope and stopped to rest where a small ridge was. And um, I noticed about this fresh three-inch thick Douglas fir tree, eight feet off the ground, and I measured it. It was eight feet, one inch, was snapped at 90 degrees over it, just freshly been done that July. And I couldn't figure out how that could possibly have been done because all the small twigs around the break were totally undamaged. Nothing was touched. And about 100 yards along that ridge, I found another one, measured it, and it was within one or two inches of that same height. And about approximately every 100 yards, we'd find one of these, and it was in a closed canopy, so no wind or anything else could have done that. So I took pictures of all these and, and uh, you know, talked to Renee about it, and he didn't seem to have much advice on that part. Um, but Titmus thought it was something to keep looking at. So uh, a few years later, in 2003, I found in Northern California the other type uh, we were in an area where a lot of Sasquatch activity had been. Uh, this area number four I called, and I found a uh, uh, ponderosa pine that was, again, it was almost three inches thick, the trunk about seven and a half feet off the ground, and this one was rung. It was twisted, just like you take a, a wet rag and wring the water out of it. It was twisted so hard you could see day, uh, daylight completely through the trunk of the tree in quarter-inch gaps. And it was exactly like this story in Sports of Field had described. So I started finding these. If I, and and they're not, it's not something common. You don't find it every day. But if you know what to look for, you can find these things. And, and this tree was also in the middle of July, so it had been freshly done. So these were two really good examples of what they do. And my Indian friend said, oh, that's, that's exactly what they're doing there. They're marking territory. Uh, they will do it in line to tell like when they're moving from one feeding area to another. Uh, the dominant one will usually leave the area first, and the other ones will use these as markers to follow, and that's what I was told. And sometimes they even, uh, another native uh, person we know, uh, said that they will even use this to mark an area telling others of their kind that this is dangerous, usually around an area where people are a lot. And I know of a place where I saw that also. So... These are the kinds of things they do. And then droppings. We have an area when they're in an area, uh, you know, these things, like a lot of higher primates, well, they seem to poop a lot. <laughs> and uh, in one area, we would find as many as 50 piles in a 35-square-mile area where they were feeding heavily on, on berries and things like that during the summer. And they're enormous. Uh, it's nothing like bear or anything else and. and the equivalent animal would be a 1,200-pound horse by volume. They're about the same volume or something like that. So uh, and these, these droppings, you know, the segments are, I've seen them as big as up to three inches across and just huge, huge amounts. You wouldn't want to walk out there in that area in the dark. <laughs> no, we joked about one on the highway one time being it was so enormous that it was mostly berries from one of the nearby orchards that uh, if somebody hit that with their car, they would have slid off into the
But it's just, you know, it's not something that's even questionable when you see that they're just, they're so different than anything else, and just by sheer volume alone, nothing else is doing that. Um, And with the territorial markings and, of course, footprints, uh, the kind of eating habits, uh, I've seen piles of droppings where they're eating, and, of course, they'll scavenge in garbage dumps. Uh, We had one pile that even had a plastic bag in it. So, you know, they were eating just kind of anything, um, and usually with leaves, they'll strip leaves. And um, up north in Washington, there's a lot of uh, black cap plants. I'm not sure what they're called, other than black caps. That's what we know them as. But they had big broad leaves during the summer. Uh, the leaves are actually pretty tender. The person that eat those, they, they don't taste bad at all. But we'd find 30 foot areas just completely stripped of these leaves. And deer and elk don't eat like that. They're nibblers. They'll walk along. They'll take a bite here and bite there. They don't leave a lot of sign behind them as they move along. Uh, you know, if you're trained to know what to look for, you can spot where a deer elk is eating. But these are whole areas that are just stripped of all the leaves. So nothing else does that except the Sasquatch. That's totally amazing. I mean, wow. Uh, you know, I was hoping it would be time to take a caller. Do you, uh, would you like to take a call? Sure. All right. Okay, we have area code 415. 415, you are on the air. Hello? Hello. Hi. Hi, Will. Um, I have a question for you. We uh, actually lived in the area above Cedar Woolley uh, near Concrete, and we have a, have a friend that actually saw uh, Bigfoot tracks up there, and I wonder if you guys have heard any, a lot of reports up in that area. There's a lot of stuff in that area. Really? Yeah, I'm kind of excited to get up that way this year if I can. Really? Interesting. Yeah, because we're, we're here in California right now visiting, <laughs> and we're heading back to Washington, and uh, would love to uh, talk to you sometime about the area up there because my friend actually has a picture somewhere of a Bigfoot track that he captured. Oh, great. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's above yeah, the... Above the, uh, God, what is that, uh, Lake Shannon up there. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's a great area for him up there. Mm-hmm. Cool. That might be what we saw. Oh, okay, I, yeah, I definitely have to talk to you because <laughs> we had some interesting <laughs> absolutely, experiences. Absolutely, absolutely. Get in touch with me. Yeah. Uh, my name is Sandy Wells, by the way, and uh, okay. we actually live in that area, so Cool. Well, that's great. It's, it's always the, nice to have contacts in areas when I go in there so I can stop and chat, you know, and kind of keep uh-huh. talking what's going on. Great. Um, I'll have I, – I know David and Sherelle very well. Um, I'll have them okay. maybe give, give uh, your email to me or something, and I'll, I'll get hold of you. Oh, that's great. Super. Oh, awesome. Thanks Yay. a lot. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Sandy. I had, on Facebook. I had a, one more question that was in chat. Um, uh, there was a question that says so many people say that the Bigfoots are interdimensional beings, and they would like to know what do you think about that. That's yeah, from Supernatural I've been, Radio. I've been involved with this for 41 years tomorrow, and um, I haven't seen anything that would indicate that. That doesn't mean it isn't. But I haven't. Everything I've experienced has been uh, very 
you know, mundane, if you can call an 800-pound hairy biped mundane, but uh, um, not that I've seen. Everything I've seen is, is you know, down-to-earth, um, explainable, you know, normal, normal everyday animal type evidence. Okay, well, thank you for answering that. And we have a few minutes left. I just want to mention that uh, he, he has a few books out. Just look on uh, Amazon.com. I have links to it on my website, radio show page, and link to this current book, Notes from the Field, Tracking North America Sasquatch, on my website, Facebook. It's not hard to find, uh, and in search of the unknown. Now, how can people get a hold of you, or would you like to... Tell them how they can get a hold of you or about your group on Facebook. They can they can either reach me on if they want to on Facebook or uh, my blog page, which is uh, very popular. It's uh, jebningresearch.blogspot.com. Or if they want to contact me direct, it's just williamjebning at yahoo.com. All right, thank you very much. Now, with just a few minutes left, do you have some kind of experience that you found very interesting, no matter who it's from? That you know, you can tell me a couple of minutes that that you thought was interesting. You know, on, on this week's show, we were talking about screams, and one of the interesting cats I thought this was fascinating was a group in Colorado uh, were out, and they they spotted this young one, very small one, in a tree, and it came charging down the tree, screeched at him, and went charging off, and then either threw a stick in the air or hit it, and it flipped up in the air but it was almost like challenging him. And this little guy was maybe, you know, three or four feet tall. And uh, to me, that, that's, kind of, that's the kind of thing, you know, people just don't make up things like that. It's, uh, you no, know, they don't. It's easy to make up a story where, yeah, I saw this thing run across the road, you know, and, and off it went, and that's all I saw. But uh, when they have, and this story, that story had tons, tons of details, and um, many, many, like there are thousands of stories. I, I've talked to thousands of people over the years, and... Uh, it's extremely rare when I've come across a hoax, extremely rare. Uh, the preponderance of people are those that had no interest in this whatsoever and were just, like me, were just kind of thrown into it. And, uh, and the details are overwhelming in most cases. So do you think that somebody should try to, like, uh, trap one one time and photograph it or something and let it go or maybe just film it instead? What do you think would be the best way to... Or one of the ways to show the world. <laughs> I think I think I actually have some burial sites located, and a number of these. And we've been talking about putting a business plan together and proposing getting financing. Uh, and we think we could get proof it that way. That would be the best all-around way because all you need is a single tooth to prove it's real without really hurting anything. So uh, everything else has been tried. Nobody believes it. But if you bring in some hard proof, like a tooth bone fragment, oh yes, and they can do genetic testing now that has really advanced now. And oh, that's right. Everything, yeah. and it's a lot better than it was ten years ago. I think that'd be amazing. Yeah, to, it would. Be. Well, that's very good. Well, our show's about over. We want to thank you so very much. Uh, for being on the show, Will. It, it's been great. I'd like to talk even more and hear more experiences and stories, but we just don't have time. Maybe we'll have to come back again, and we also are certainly going to tune into your radio show. And I'd love to come back anytime. So, um, 
God bless you and Julie, and thank you for being on the show, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. All right. Thank good night, you. Will. Have a great night. All right, you too. All right, good night. Good night. While you've been listening to Beyond the Gate Radio, thank you, everybody, for listening. This was uh, an amazing show. This is the first time we've ever had this subject on the show. And uh, I hope that we brought some information to everybody that doesn't know about it now can learn a little bit more about it. And if you want, go out and get Will's book, Notes from the Field, Tracking North America's Sasquatch. It has a lot of amazing information and photographs in there. Thank you very much from Beyond the Gate. Good night, Cheryl. Good night, David. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Good night. Thank you.